good evening. Everybody well? All right, we're going to jump straight in tonight. Is that okay? I'm going to take you to 1 Samuel 30. I'll join you there in a moment, just while you get in there. Can I just um, say a big thank you from the church back home in Grand Rapids? They send their love, by the way. Most of you might not know us, apart from the theological books that come out of the city. I'm sorry, most of them are not very good. Some of them are okay. But uh, from the church, a big thank you to you all for the times that you released some of your senior uh, leaders here to us. Richard, Anis in particular, but also Dave Emmett traveling to our church in Grand Rapids and our campuses probably about once a year, or at least Richard's there once a year, laid a great deposit with us. We value their gift greatly. We value their friendship even more. And um, you may not know this, but when they come, we work them really, really hard. Some people think when preachers go to America, they just chill out and eat too much food. We do eat too much food, but uh, these guys work really, really hard when they're with us leave a great deposit among our people. So I wanted to say a big thank you to you all for releasing them. Also, Richard and Judith are coming over um, this summertime in August to do a marriage conference and preach around our campuses too. So in advance, thank you for releasing them. They do a great job when they're with us. So our church back home, again, you might not know us, but we are praying for you guys and I trust you are praying for us too in all that we are doing. All right, you ready? You're not gonna be quiet tonight, are you? You get a, if you're the loudest, I've done four meetings today. If you're the loudest meeting, you get a prize. The loudest. I've got full authority from Richard to say this. I haven't, but I'm going to say it anyway. The loudest, most responsive person in the room tonight, Richard will take you for a Brazilian steakhouse meal, and he'll pay. Just one of you. Do you know what? I can hear my wife shouting all the way from home. <laughs> Gotta be in the room, and you can't be in by marriage. So, just tell me, he took me yesterday to eat in this Brazilian steakhouse. Fantastic meat. So, it's up for grabs tonight. It's up to you. If you respond, there's incentive for you. Anyway, 1 Samuel chapter 30. I want to talk to you tonight around this what to do on a bad day. How many of you have ever had a bad day? How many of you are having a bad day right now? No. What to do on a bad day? You've probably guessed this if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Um, It's not come to Jesus and life is rosy. In fact, if you're on the cutting edge of what God is doing, it's usually come to Jesus, serve his kingdom and his purpose, and all hell will break loose. Because when you're doing something on the front line for God, the enemy doesn't like it. And just by basically being alive on the planet, there are those days or those situations and seasons of life where you think, what on earth have I done to deserve this? The great thing for us, which separates us from those that are not saved, is we have some inside information. And we don't have to be ruled by and dictated to by outside circumstance or inner turmoil of soul. We are people who can live from a place of victory, live from the place of the finished work of the cross, our identity in Christ. We seated with him in heavenly realms. We are more than conquerors through Christ who gives us strength. So that's how we get to live. But I'd like to look a little bit around this tonight is how do we handle bad days and what do we do when they happen? So I'm going to do it from the life of David from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 30. I trust you there. I will take you to another story at some point tonight, um, a few chapters back in 1 Samuel 17. I'm not going to read the whole thing just because of time, but follow with me if you would. I'll read the first six verses and then might maybe jump around a bit. But it says this, David and his men reached Ziklag, On the third day, now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it. So no matter how bad a day you think you're having, it's not this bad, where they burned your home. They burned it and taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. Verse 3, when David and his men reached Ziklag, in other words, they came home, They found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men, bear in mind these are fighting men, warriors. David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. That's a whole lot of crying for men. 
Verse 5, David's two wives had been captured. Verse 6, David was greatly distressed because on top of everything else, he was greatly distressed because the men, his men, were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. I'm going to read this next verse, and we're going to come back to it because I want to talk to you about it later. But I'm just going to read over it really quick. It said this, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Jump with me to the back of the story. Basically what happens, David takes 600 men, goes to get back what's been stolen from him. 200 men cave in on the way. So he's got 400 men to go and get back what's been taken from his life. And again, for the sake of time, we'll just jump into a couple of verses. Verse 17 says this. David fought them from dusk until evening the next day, and none of them got away, except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them the head of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Here's the story. It finishes very different to how it begins. It begins in a very, very, very bad day, but it ends with a great story of restoration. Because not only does he get back everything that was stolen, he also gets their herds and their sheep and plunder. And that's always God's plan with restoration. Restoration does not mean you get back what you've lost. It means you get back what you lost and then some. I think the King James calls it booty. They went after them and they raided their lots and they took booty back. That means something very different today, I know. But part of restoration is you get booty. Take that how you want. Anyway, in this story, there's like two halves. And I'm intrigued by what changed the disastrous day into a victorious story of restoration. And to me, everything hangs on this one verse. I want to call it a little verse, this little verse, because it is short, but it's not little. It's actually huge when you see the importance of it. And it's this verse, the end of chapter 6. It said, David found strength in the Lord his God. That word strength, found strength, is a Hebrew word which is called hazak. We've got it up on the screen there. It's a very, very powerful word. H-A-Z-A-Q. Hazak. It sounds like a combination of Welsh, Russian, and someone sneezing. Hazak. <laughs> but it's a powerful word. I want you to get this word tonight because it's important. So you can have a go of saying it. You ready? Because you've gone very quiet since I mentioned the free meal. <laughs> After three, I want you to try and say it. Not with a Mancurian accent, but like as if you're Welsh, Russian, and you're about to sneeze. You ready? You ready? After three. Hazak, right? You got it? One, two, three. That's not bad. That's probably the best of the day. Let's try it one more time. You ready? I want you to get this word. You wake up in the middle of the night screaming it. Hazak! Ready? One, two, three. That was pretty good. Hazak. It's a powerful word and it has many, many different meanings. Um, I've got a slide if it's going to go up on the screen behind me. When you find this word translated in scripture, it has various meanings that all have the essence of what I want to talk to you about tonight. So to hazak yourself, and I'll talk about what I think that means in a moment, but he was in this moment of time where his men are going to stone him, his wives and children have gone, his city's been burned, he's tired, they've wept like babies till there's no strength left. And then in the middle of that, he hazaks himself. And I think these words give us some insight into what he did. The word hazak means this. It means to be strong. And there are those times in life, you've just got to be strong. The Hebrew writer of the Hebrew says, don't throw away your confidence. You've got to find some strength sometimes in life. You've got to be courageous. It means to make firm. In other words, when life is breaking out badly around you, you just stay firm and make yourself firm, sure on the foundations that are already in you. It means to strengthen. It means to support. Sometimes you hit seasons of life where there's no one around you in that moment to support you, but you can support yourself. Somehow you can bring strength and support to your inner being. It means to encourage. Again, sometimes there's nobody around, but you have within you the ability, and I'll talk to you about this at the end, 
one of the realities of the new creation that we get that he didn't have, you get this ability to internally encourage yourself. It means to preserve. In other words, when the storms of life are going, you just don't lose things. Things don't perish from your life. There's this ability to preserve things internally. It means to conquer. That's the truth that's ours in Christ because the Bible says we are more than conquerors through Christ who gives us strength. But there are moments where you don't feel like a conqueror, but you need to remind yourself that you are, and Hazak in yourself brings that conviction back into clear focus. I love this one, it means to seize. Sometimes, and we'll see this in the life of David, you've just gotta seize and grab a hold of the things you know to be true, not letting your mind run, your emotions rule. You just seize your internal being. It means to retain, and I love this last one, it means to harden. Sometimes, and I'll say this to men and women, you've just got to man up. We are not weak. You've not been given a spirit of timidity, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Sometimes you've just got to harden yourself, and there's a way to do it in a moment so that everything doesn't come crashing down around you. So there's some definitions of this word, and so it doesn't tell us in the story exactly how he did it. But in the, in, the, in the context, in the middle of everything that was going on, David found himself hazacked. He hazacked himself in the Lord and something happened to him. So it doesn't tell us what he did, but you can get clues from elsewhere in David's life. This is not an exhaustive list, but there's some things as I've looked at David's life, I've appreciated, especially on those days when things aren't going quite the way you want them to. So I want to suggest five things that could have happened in David's life because of what he did elsewhere and what's recorded in scripture. The first one is this. David knew how to magnify the Lord and not magnify the problem. How many of you know he was in a pretty bad situation? Be the easiest thing in the world to magnify the problem. In fact, I don't know how you could magnify it more than what it was because he was about to be stoned to death. But you find in the Psalms things like this. I, lo- I love these scriptures. It says this, David speaking them. Let's magnify the Lord. Many, many times. Magnify the Lord. I say within me, magnify the Lord. And it's a corporate thing as well. He says, come together, let's magnify the Lord. Magnification is a beautiful thing when you understand its power. Most people know how to do it. It's just they do it in a negative way, not in a positive way. Magnifying glasses, everyone know what magnifying glasses are? You've probably got them built into your phone these days with an app, magnifying app. But a magnifier does this. When you can't see something very clearly or as small, if you put a magnifying glass on it, it magnifies what you're looking at and makes it large. We do it so easily in a negative way. It works kind of like this. Here's a couple of examples. You're in work and um, you're in the break room and all of a sudden you hear that the company's gone through a bad quarter and they're gonna have to lay some staff off. That's all you hear. Some people do this. Soon as they hear that, in a split second, in the inner recesses of their mind, they kind of propel the story forward and magnify it beyond what's remotely acceptable and possible to happen. And things like this happen. Someone's going to get laid off straight away. Oh, I bet that's me. I'm going to get laid off. And at my age, I'll never get another job. Oh, my wife. If I can't support my family, she's not going to love me anymore. She's probably going to divorce me and marry that guy in the church who really gets on my nerves. And my kids won't respect me anymore, so I'll never see my kids. I'm probably going to end up living under a bridge in Manchester as a crack addict and be dead within three years from malnutrition. Slightly exaggerated, (laughs) but you'd be surprised. And then you think, how did I end up over here? All I heard was a little rumor that someone's getting laid off. But we learn to magnify negatively. That's what takes you into worry and fear. It's the opposite of how we should function, which is in faith and confidence. It's like this, you wake up in the morning and you've got a little lump somewhere on your body. And as it happens, you just got stung in the night by a bee or something. And it, but anyway, you've got this lump. And you think, lump? Oh my gosh, my great, great, great grandfather had a lump. And he died of cancer within two weeks of finding the lump. 
Oh my gosh, I've got no health insurance. I'm going to die. My wife and kids are going to be on the street. They'll probably end up living under a bridge, crack addicts, and probably die of mal- malnutrition. And you, you end up, you catch yourself down these corridors of stupidity. Um, and 95% of what people worry about actually never happens. But it's the reverse power of, the, of magnification. But David had this ability in many situations to just magnify the Lord. And here's what I know, if you can catch yourself on a bad day before the bad day becomes 50 times worse, and you seize your thoughts and rule your emotions, and train yourself to just lift up your eyes and magnify the Lord. His word, his nature, his goodness, the fact he's never let you down and he's never gonna let you down. And out of that, it should spring up something in you called praise and thanksgiving, and all of a sudden you've caught, you've seized the day, and you've caught yourself before you go down an avenue. So magnifying the Lord is one possibility um, that David did. The second thing I like about this and what I find in David's life is flip back a few um, chapters into 1 Samuel 17. I want to take you quickly into another story which is quite similar. And this is why I'm drawing this thing out because a, a period of time before this situation with Ziklag, David, when he comes onto the public scene, he has to deal with a giant called Goliath. You all know that story. And it's interesting, he comes down into a situation where God's people, the armies of God, aren't dealing with something. You know the story, Goliath, he's nine and a half foot tall, and he swaggers out every day with a big mouth and you know, big presence. And instead of God's people dealing with it, this is what the Bible says. When they saw his size, when they heard what he said, so please understand what you see and what you hear is very important and it dictates what goes on in your inner world. But when they saw his size and heard what he said, this is what God's people did. They turned around and they ran away. So David comes in to the middle of a story again. If you read the start of the story, God's people are doing absolutely nothing apart from being locked in this cycle of 40 days and 40 nights. That's 80 times going through the motions and doing absolutely nothing. David comes on the scene, and at this point, he was probably about 17 and a half. That's what theologians from Grand Rapids teach us, 17 and a half. And he comes onto the scene, and he views it very different to everybody else. And in this story, he's about to tip the balance from doing nothing into victory again. But I love this about David, he seems to have this confidence. Like, who's this circumcised guy? And I'll tell you why he references circumcision in a moment. Who's he? He's in the same environment, but he reads it totally different. And news gets to the, to the king, Saul, the guy that should have been handling the situation. So he says, bring David in. And when his dialogue is going on with David, in the middle of it all, he says this. You're just, you're just a kid. You're just a boy. You can't go and fight Goliath. He's been fighting since he was a kid. And David answers him this way. Watch this, 1 Samuel 17, verse 36. This is David, and this is point two. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul must have heard something of faith in him, so it says the next verse, Saul said, go, and the Lord be with you. But here we have this boy, and this is what he did, and this is point two. He seemed to have what to others may look like arrogance, but to him was just confidence in this. He knew who he was, he knew whose he was, And he knew exactly what he could do because of previous testimonies of God delivering him from a lion and a bear. And I love this about David, right in the middle of this story where the people that should be dealing with it were not. Here's this 17 and a half year old Welsh shepherd boy that just (laughs) looks at Goliath. It's fascinating to me in this story. David never called him a giant. In the story, David saw one giant, and it was himself. 
He sized the day. His perspective was very different to everybody else's. And so he looks at this Philistine and um, says, you're uncircumcised. I'll come, I'll come to that in my next point. But my point is this. He understood who he was. The promises that he had. The fact he'd mentioned circumcision basically says this. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the seal and kind of the sign of your covenant with God. So people that did not have that, what he was saying was this, you're like an unbeliever in our vernacular. You are someone that's got no promises going for him. God is not on your side and you're defying us, the people of God, the people of circumcision, God's own property. And he stands very confident in who he is. And it's not arrogance. It's just, I'm a, I'm a priest and I'm a king. I'm a new creation. I am God's own property. How dare this circumstance think it can rob me? It's not arrogant. It's just confident. And he's confident in who he is. He's confident in who he belongs to. And he's confident in what he's able to do based on his experience when people have tried, like this giant, to come and steal from him before. So it's important that not only we learn to magnify the Lord, that that's our knee-jerk reaction, but also that we are confident, and lots of these words for Hazak that came up on the screen are to do with just being solid and hardened and convinced of truths that are already in existence. You must never on a bad day think God doesn't love me anymore. I'm not now because it's a cold, wet Tuesday in Manchester and everything's gone wrong. You're not less loved less honored, there's no less power available to you, there's no less promise available to you, and you must never let circumstance dictate to how you see yourself and how you see God on your behalf. So that's two things. The third thing I like about him, and we find it in this story, is he talked to the problem, not about the problem. Too many believers, and in fact in this story with David and Goliath, that's what everybody was doing when they went back to their tents at night, talking about this giant, feeding the fears and the magnification in each other of how bad this Goliath guy was. For us, we need to stop talking about problems and start talking to the problem. There's a huge difference. Jesus put it this way in the New Testament. He said, if you've got faith, even as small as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move, and it will move. Too many of us are caught up in praying for God to do things when God is saying, just speak to the mountain in the authority I've given you, and it will move. So when circumstance happens and a thief is around, we should stand confidently saying, whoa, stop. In this story with David and Goliath, verse 45, listen to this, this is so powerful. David, basically what's happening here, they're gonna fight. They've both walked up. David is gonna fight Goliath. Goliath taunts David, because this is how enemy works. The devil will always mouth to you till the last second. And so Goliath, representing the enemies of God, is just mouthing to David. I'm gonna mess you up, son. That's the message translation. <laughs> but watch this. Watch David. Watch what he does. He doesn't talk about, he doesn't cower, this is what David does, and this is really powerful. David said, everyone say said. said. David said to the Philistine, he's standing there, this little ruddy boy, that's what he was called. This ruddy young boy stood there, facing a nine and a half foot tall guy with a shield bearer in front of him. If you need someone to carry your shield, it's a big bluff. So the shield bearer's in front of him, he's got his javelin and everything else, and David says to him, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but, I love the big buts of scripture, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He knows who he is. But listen to what he says. The name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defiled. Sucker. <laughs> he goes on to say, that's what I love, this day, in other words, there's no procrastination having it happening here. You ain't having one more day of life, son. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. 
He's a little boy standing there with a sling and some stones. And I'll strike you down and I'm going to cut off your head. You think, ooh, very arrogant. He's doing something very smart here. He's prophetically framing his future by what he's saying to a giant. This day, he doesn't just stop there. Goliath isn't just going to get it, but it goes to another dimension. This day, I will give the carcasses of this entire army. So he's taking everyone on. Of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And he doesn't stop there. Then he says, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Just like that. And all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword and spear and the story goes on. Here's the interesting thing. Picture this. He is making these decrees, these declarations, and they're not from an empty heart. What he believes in his heart, he's confessing with his mouth. When you go home tonight, read the rest of the story. Basically, everything David said is exactly what happened. Because he goes after him, you know the story. Throws his uh, stone, hits him in the forehead. Down goes Goliath. David didn't have a sword. He's making these boasts when he hasn't even got a sword. He goes over to Goliath, takes him by the hair probably, chops off his head with Goliath's sword, holds up the head and teaches us once and for all how to get ahead in life. (laughs) Thank you. Richard, that's the guy, you gotta take him for food. You just want a free meal sent to some Brazilian barbecue place. How to get ahead in life. This is what happens. And as a little sideline, I'll teach you a principle here. When you deal with what the big issue is, the giant, the root, it's very interesting to me in life, and I've watched this for years in helping people and in my own life. When you take down the one thing that God tells you to deal with, it's amazing the domino effect on other areas of your life. It's like as if you take down a stronghold, you take down a giant, you go after a root issue, and life and blessing springs up in other areas of life you didn't expect it. Because this is what happened. David takes down one giant, or he didn't even call him that, one nine and a half foot tall guy, and this is what happens. All the enemies of God lose their confidence. All of God's people gain their confidence, and the armies of God pursue the Philistines, and they slay them on the battleground in the, in the fields, and plunder their booty. Two booties in one sermon. Plunder their goods. And you read the story, same thing again. The end of the story is victory and it's restoration and it's breakthrough and it's miracle. And then the beginning of the story is people locked up in cycles doing nothing. And you think, what's the difference? There's this guy again, David. And he just stands differently to everybody else but he deals with the problem. And one of the ways he did it, not only knowing who he was and whose he was and what he could do, he spoke prophetically into his future. Too many people pray about things that you just need to speak to. Just a couple of quick examples in my life. Um, I used to have a disease um, called dermatitis, which, and I had it bad because I used to handle chemicals in a summer job that I used to have when I was in school. And my hands would crack and flake and peel and bleed looked awful and I got saved in the, in the middle of all this and then I got prayed for for my hands I'm convinced from scripture God wants to heal me and I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and say just speak to your hands tell them what to do so I'd look at my hands every day not for long only a period of weeks and every day I'd say you are healed by the stripes of Jesus therefore I command you skin be restored disease go be fully restored, words to that effect. That was, I was 18 then, I'm 49 now, that's 31 years ago. I got healed at that moment in time, and this is a disease that doesn't leave your body. I haven't had one day of dermatitis since then through speaking to my own body. Another thing I had going on in my life at that time was a lot of warts, probably again from the chemicals, but a lot of warts on my hand. And this time I felt the Holy Spirit say, just curse them. They shouldn't be there. That's not part of you. 
this thing growing on your body. So same thing again. I'd look at him and I'd say, I curse you in Jesus' name. What? You've got no right in this temple of the Holy Ghost. Get out of my body. Same thing. Within weeks, they disappear. I haven't had one wart since. This principle of speaking, Jesus taught it so you can do it. That's how God created everything. You know that, right? God didn't create you by a thought. In the beginning, you know, you know all that, and God said, and the creative power of the spoken word created a world. If you understand this dynamic in scripture and the power of truth, you can create your own worlds based on scripture. Through our life, Ange and I, at different seasons in different areas, God's just told us to just stand in our authority and to speak to things. Speak to problems and tell them to leave. Speak into situations with people and command them to go. Speak into situations that seem to be locked up and prayer doesn't seem to be breaking it free. God says just speak, use your authority. Loose things, we're told to bind and loose in scripture. And we have an authority in lots of different realms, but bringing it back into what I'm talking about today, when you're in a bad day, don't start talking negatively. Don't talk about the problem, talk to the problem, and you'll be surprised how powerful your words are. Fourth thing, not only talk to the problem, but talk to yourself. How many of you in this room talk to yourself? All the time, that's a good thing. How many of you talk positive things to yourself, based on scripture? Most of the time. Thank you for your honesty. If I could give more meals away tonight, I would, but I think Richard's upset enough as it is. Let me show you another powerful principle in David's life. You don't need to turn your ring, and I do this really fast, but you can write these scriptures down. David spoke to himself in a peculiar way, and he's not bipolar, but he speaks to himself in a very, very unusual way, David. Psalm 42, verse 5. And this is all over scripture, I'm just pulling these out, and psalmists elsewhere use this too. It's Psalm 42, verse five, listen to this. David talking to himself. Why, my soul, he's talking to his soul. You all know you have a soul. You are a spirit, that's the part of you that came alive to God, and you have a soul. Mind, will, intellect, emotions, that realm. David here speaks to his own soul. He's like he's having a conversation with himself. And he says, he looks in, he obviously realized he was downcast and distressed, and it surprised him. So he says, why so downcast, oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Then he tells himself what to do. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. Verse six, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan. Deep calls to deep, very poetic language, but he's talking about dealing with his inner soul. Verse 11, same chapter. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Chapter 6, uh, sorry, chapter 43, verse 6 says a similar thing, or verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He talks to himself and tells himself how not to be and what to do. This is why when he has asked himself, when you see the definitions that I showed you on the screen, this must have been going on inside him because he had every reason to be distressed and downcast, but he has asked himself and something happens in him. David talked to himself, told himself how to feel, restrained himself from letting his emotions rule. Talking to yourself is huge because sometimes when you're in a situation, there is nobody else around to talk to you. Those are the times he talks here in this scripture about put your hope in God. Hope is a beautiful word. One of the biblical definitions of the word hope is this, is have a positive expectation of good. So he's saying, whoa, don't be distressed, don't be downcast. Put your hope, have a positive expectation in God, for I will yet praise him. He's ruling his inner world. And there are times you just gotta speak to yourself. Tell yourself about the goodness of God. In fact, can I encourage you to do something every day for the next seven days? Just say yes. yes. Try this, right? This will change your life. Every morning when you get up, before you go and do anything else, and you walk past the mirror in the bathroom, stop for a moment and look at yourself. And look in the mirror and just tell yourself some powerful things. Like, even if you've got to speak faith. You look good today. 
Today, you are more than a conqueror. Today, if an enemy comes before you one way, it's going to flee before you seven or ten. Today, everything's just going to fall into place. You're going to have the run of the ball, just like the Welsh soccer team. Today is going to be a blessed day. Today, you're the head and not the tail, above all, not beneath. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You're more than a conqueror. And then go to the toilet. You'll go very differently. Here's the power of words. I just rambled off um, a handful of sayings. And some of you got excited inside, even as I'm saying it. You know why? Because deep calls to deep, and there's power in words. But you can do that to yourself every day. Try that in a mirror. You're not going to have a bad day. So try it in a good day to prove it works. And then on the bad days, when things go wrong, remember the principle and speak to yourself and speak to your future. And the great thing today, and I'd encourage you to do this, is we've all got these electronic things. Now, we didn't have these when I was a kid. Here's a good practice. On a really good day, when you're feeling really good about yourself, just record yourself speaking to yourself for the bad day. Say, Andrew, just remember, you're as handsome as 10 bears. You're loved, you're valued. You're a child of the king. And a lot more things that I just said you can say in the mirror. And record it, especially remind yourself of promises and prophecies. Andrew, this is what God said to you. Then on a day that's funky, just get your phone out and listen to yourself speak to you in that moment and watch your soul rise. Watch your spirit get excited. It's words, they're your words. But words are powerful. And David spoke to himself. He did it, and I guarantee you in the Hazak in that was going on. God's promised you things. God's a God of restoration. Muster your strength, get your men, and go and get back what an enemy's robbed for you. I'm with you, I'm for you. Go get them, son. Changes your whole disposition, your whole trajectory on what you're going to do from that moment on. So talking to yourself is important. My last thing is this. Number one, magnify the Lord. Number two, know what you are, who you are, whose you are, and what you can do. Number three, talk to the problem, not about the problem. Number four, talk to yourself. And number five, and I'll finish with this. I haven't got a scripture for this, but I find this essence in David's life. I probably could find scriptures, but I want to talk to you about this. I want to hang it around a phrase. David knew, and we need to know, how to be prophetic and not photographic in our outlook on life. Because as believers, as the church, we are prophetic, and God does not want us being photographic in our thinking. I'll explain what I mean by that. How many of you remember those old cameras, Polaroid cameras, where you take a shot and the photo comes out? I'm probably with the wrong crowd tonight, you're all young in here, apart from Richard. He's probably the oldest in here, are you? Um, out comes this thing. Do you remember them? You, you wave them, and then you watch, you watch the thing, um, I don't know what they call it, the miracle of, develop, so it's been a long day today. You watch this thing develop in front of your eyes. By the way, if you've got one of those cameras, they're worth a lot of money. And uh, you watch it now, you don't have to do that. Now you've got a phone or a watch or an implant in your eye, and when you <laughs> wink, you take a photo of someone. Very different now, and I've just lost my clock. Hang on. Oh, I'm out of time. Am I okay? Am I okay? All right. So, f let me explain what I mean by all this. Some people live in a world where there's a snapshot of the moment and that's all you see. That's what happens on a bad day. It's like, oh my gosh, this is all I can see. You can't see a day in advance, five days in advance, and three years in advance. You're stuck in a moment. God doesn't want his people living like that. We live prophetically, which means this. We have promises about tomorrow, and a prophetic people do this. They grab a hold of the promises of tomorrow, and they bring them into their day as they pull themselves into their future. That's how we live. You live according to the promises of God. You might not see it manifest today in your life, the way you're looking at it, but you know it's going to come, and you have a positive expectation of good that what God said is going to happen is going to happen. I heard this principle years ago, 
And I'll tell you the story. Um, I think I have told it in Manchester before, but it's brilliant, so I want to tell it again. I went to a meeting several years ago, and on the platform, this guy was standing there. He's mid-40s, good-looking guy. He had his wife next to him, very pretty lady. Three kids, you know, white teeth, dinner, all ripped and looking healthy. American dream. And he's standing on the platform, and then he gives his testimony, powerful testimony. This guy used to be a manic depressant. He was in a very bad state of life, and he committed suicide. He actually did it, not for attention. He, he calculated it and did it. But what happened, this Christian guy found him in the street, phoned an ambulance, long story short, got him to the hospital. The guy eventually recovered after days, came back to normality. And when he wakes up, this Christian that had saved him was there, led him to Christ, took him into his community. I think he took him into his home, actually. And this guy became part, he got born again, became part of a Christian community. His life turned around. And now, whatever it was, five, ten years later, he's on a platform telling his story. But he said this, and he had a ministry to helping people who were in that world, you know, suicidal thoughts, etc. He said, this is, this is how I lived. Every day, it was like looking at the same photograph as yesterday. I lived in a photographic moment of time where for me, there was nothing outside of it. It's like Groundhog Day. Every day, I'm waking up in this mess and that's all it is. So he decided to take his life. And he said, again, I can't prove this, it's his testimony, the people he helps that have suicidal tendencies, it's the same thing. They can't see anything beyond the moment that they stuck in. And he said, then when I got born again and I started finding the promises of God and who I was in Christ and all the wonderful things that God said to me and people started prophesying about me having a successful business, a beautiful wife, all these kids. He said, I started lifting my eyes and seeing prophetically and everything and living proof, everything that God said to me happened. In fact, words like not only am I gonna heal you but you will be my mouthpiece to a generation that are suffering the same way. And he had this successful ministry helping people out. But I've never forgotten it because of this. He said, people live with a photographic view of life. He said, and as believers, we don't have to live that way. And that's how David had this in him, which is why he writes things like this also in the Psalms. Lift up your head. Lift up your eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. Open up the gates. Open up the ancient gates of the king of glory may come in. He writes psalms about looking for the deliverance of God. And that's how we get to live. That's how you get out of the bad day. That's how you get out of the marriage that's in turmoil. Stop looking at the marriage the way it is. Get some help. Find God's word. Lift up your eyes. See what God can do. And it breaks out in your life. You don't have to be looking at your apartment or your flat every day, staring at the mildew on the wall, freaking out about your finances and you can't get a better job than McDonald's. Don't take that snapshot that that's how your life's gonna be. Look into the promises. Lift up your eyes. Lift, open up your gates. Forever praise him. And God will move you out of those things. There's five simple keys. The one thing as I close that we have in the New Testament that he didn't have, which has everything to do with all the definitions about Hazak, is this. If you're a believer, you have the right to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. One of the main evidences that you've got it is this wonderful ability to speak in other tongues. It's not the main reason it was given. The main reason you get baptized in the Holy Spirit is to have power to be a witness. And there's a load of other mysteries and dynamics that open up when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. But here's one thing, speaking in tongues. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. And when he wrote to them, he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He said this, when you prophesy, you edify the church. And we all know what prophecy does. You know, it edifies, encourages, comforts, consoles, it builds up. But the next verse, he says, but when you speak in tongues, you edify yourself. Here's, here's a mystery and here's a wonder. Speaking in tongues to yourself is what prophecy is to the church. You can speak in tongues and build yourself up. The book of Jude, that wonderful little book, one chapter long. So you can tell people, I read a whole, chapter, I read a whole book of the Bible last night, Jude. But right in the middle of Jude, it's got this fantastic verse. 
And it's all about us doing something. He says this, the right there, he says, build yourself up. In other words, no one else is gonna do this bit for you. Build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the spirit. Now, praying in the spirit is bigger than just praying with the spirit in tongues, but it's part of it. And he says, build yourself up. One translation says, edify yourself. Build yourself up. Praying in the spirit. Edify yourself. To me, it's like this. This is the best way I find to describe it. Those of you that have a car, especially if it's an older car, sometimes when you get up in the morning and you turn the key, nothing happens. The battery's gone flat. And then you phone your dad or your friend who pulls up in a big, massive, stonking SUV, lifts the, the hood or the bonnet, puts jump leads on your car, turns his car, and it's like, cha-ching! All of a sudden, your little battery goes boom to life, and your car starts. Now, I'm not saying life's exactly like that. Every illustration falls down somewhere. But to me, that's what speaking in tongues is like. And you don't have to wait till your battery's empty to do it. But it's like when you speak in tongues, there's something that goes on. And it's like heaven goes, plugs the jump leads into your spirit and goes, chang! Inside you, all this energy comes on. It's the best way I can explain it. That's not the only reason for it. You speak mysteries to God and you can get into wonderful realms of ecstasy in that whole world. But here's the interesting thing. Most believers don't spend much time speaking in tongues. And it's a fantastic benefit that you get to enjoy in your salvation. And the great thing today in the, way, in the day in which we live, we live in high-tech society, usually in a multicultural city. So, years ago, if you were walking down the street talking to yourself, people would think you're weird. Now, with the invention of Bluetooth, you get people walking around towns and shops and on planes and trains and everywhere else, talking to themselves, and no one bats an eyelid because they presume they're talking on a Bluetooth phone. Also, in the cities in which we live, just walking to Costa and back tonight, I passed some people and didn't have a clue what language they were talking. They're from Liverpool or somewhere, but I couldn't understand anything they were saying. I'm joking. A joke. I love I love Liverpudlians. Can't understand them, but I love them. Um, but you walk down the street and you think nothing of you. You're in a dialect you don't understand. You don't turn around and say, "What was that?" Because this you're multicultural. So you think you can be what? So to me, you can walk down the street. First of all, you can talk to yourself and nobody knows. Secondly, this is brilliant. You can speak in tongues out loud, and people probably think you're from Iceland or somewhere. <laughs> Coming into the country to rub it in that you beat England in soccer. Um, point is, now you don't have to be embarrassed. You can be walking down the high street in Manchester on a cold, wet Tuesday. Everything in your world has just gone wrong. And you can just be speaking in tongues at the top of your voice. And someone will think you're passionate on the phone to your wife at home. And so there's no excuse. Speaking in tongues is one of the best ways to hazak yourself. David didn't have this option. We do. And it's not to be lazy and just speak in tongues. We have to do these other things on times. But God's given you the ability to not be ruled, controlled, and dictated to by any outside force. You can shape your own world and your own future with your words, and you can control your own inner world. And when there's peace inside, peace comes out and manifests in your life. So I'm gonna do two things as I'm done, and I'm, I'm sorry, I've been really good today sticking to time, but you're all young people and you don't sleep till gone midnight, so I'll take a liberty. But I'm gonna do two things and this will be quite fast. I'd like to pray for you first of all because of what I shared tonight. And then I'm gonna close my part, give the meeting back to this wonderful young couple here. And I wanna make this appeal. If you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire with an evidence of speaking in tongues that comes with it, again, it's not the only evidence, but it is a tangible evidence that you have been baptized and you need this gift functioning in your life. If you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit or spoken in tongues, 
then there's a ministry team here, I'm sure. They're going to lay hands on you and pray for you in faith, and you're going to get bap- you're going to get knocked senseless. You're going to get baptized in the Holy Spirit with fire. You're going to come out in tongues, and you're going to open this whole world that Jesus made available to you. Is that good? Good place for an amen right there. I know the meal is gone, but you can still respond in a meeting. But I'd like to pray. Can we stand? Is that okay? (laughs) Close your eyes if you would. There's nothing magic about closing your eyes in the meeting. But what it does do is it switches you off from the natural realm and kind of focuses you in your imagination. So I'm going to pray and just respond if you would. Because I really believe God wants to do something significant in your lives. That this is not just a message. That it's an impactful change to your life. So Father, I just want to thank you for your amazing word that reveals to us your amazing nature. You're totally good all the time. You're totally for us and you totally love us and it blows our minds. But because of it, we know you. We know your nature. And because of that, we know whose we are. So I want to pray for everybody here tonight. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come. You're in them, but you'd come, as it were, alongside them in the next weeks, days, months, and you'd help them and me understand how to rule our life from our spirit. That we'd find knee-jerk reactions when we're in odd situations that cause us to magnify the Lord. That cause us to remember who we are and whose we are and what we can do. That'll cause us to know how to speak to our worlds and frame our future. How to speak to ourselves. How to just flow in praying in the spirit. Praying with our spirit. And that you'd help us live lives that we control our environment and we control our inner world. And then, just as our soul prospers, other areas of life, because of what's inside us, begin to change. So help us be a generation that's different. Be a people that actually believe what your word says and have an audacious, ostentatious faith that does not get dictated to do by a culture or by circumstance or by an enemy. But we are sons and daughters of the King that rule and reign in life. Help us that way, please, sweet Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.